What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another amazing episode of FedWatch. My name is Ansel Linder, and I am back this week with my co-host, CK. CK, how are you doing, man? Doing good, Ansel. Good to be back. Sorry I missed you last week, but gl- glad that the Bitcoin Magazine co-hosts could jump in and fill in for me. Excited for today. We have a ton to talk about. Ansel, back to you. Yeah, so today we're going to go over a bunch of charts. I really like going over charts on these live streams because people can follow us and watch us and look at exactly what we're saying. And for the audio listeners, you can always find these charts in the link to the slides in the write-up, wherever the description that you're listening to this this podcast. So yeah, we're going to go over chart updates on Bitcoin, some currencies, some treasury yields, some energy markets, and then get into some crazy stuff that's happening geopolitically with developments in the sanctions against Russia and this Taiwan stuff with geriatric Pelosi going over there trying to start World War III over there in Taiwan. So we'll see how. Uh, How do you really feel? (laughs) Well, I mean, I I really don't think there was any threat, uh, but most people are talking about it like, hey, she's a crazy old lady and she's going over there to start World War III. So we're going to dive dive into it and talk about it. Before we get into it, I just want to give an in-person chill to the censorship resistant Bitcoin magazine. Like, just want to like, I just, I'm showing off the outside. Look how thick this thing is. It's, it's really incredible. It is a piece of Bitcoin art, definitely a collector's item in the future. So, you know, I got to show it off. There's just amazingness throughout this Beautiful. thing. Bitcoiners, you got to get a hold of this, get the subscription. We have a fresh issue coming up. It's hitting the press in the next couple of weeks and it is going to be launching next quarter. So that's going to be the Q4 issue. So not going to drop too many details, but I'm getting a note from Chris that I also have to show the cold storage issue. So if you get the cold storage subscription, you get an issue that you can open up and read and an issue that's plastic wrapped. That's perfect for framing, perfect for cold storage and saving it for collectors. So check that out. All right. That's it with my shill, Ansel. Let's get into to some of this. I know you got some some pretty cool charts that you want to jump into. Yeah. But before we do that real quick, I just want to shill my new YouTube channel. It's FedWatch Clips. So I'm taking clips out of this show and putting them up there on their own channel. You can just search for FedWatch Clips in YouTube and find it. Um, didn't I only did one last week, but I'm going to try to get more time and do two or three from each episode. Also, my Telegram channel is popping over there. I'm doing live streams every day over on Telegram. I wanted to do 15 minute live streams. They last like two or three days. They've been 30 minute live streams. People are loving it. Talking about similar stuff that we do here on FedWatch, but tying in Bitcoin even more. Some, you know, economic analysis into Bitcoin itself. So check out the telegram. It's t.me forward slash Bitcoin and markets. All, All right. right. All right. That's it with the shills. Okay. Let's get into the content. Okay. So Chris, we're going to the slides, my man. Let's go to slide number two, please. First up is the Bitcoin chart. And this has been kind of my bread and butter here lately. If you subscribe to the free weekly newsletter at bitcoinandmarkets.com, posting this weekly chart all the time. As you can see there on the right-hand side is like the volume at each price level. It's called volume by price for indicator. We, I think the price has bottomed and I did expect it to kind of rise into that gap in volume in the mid twenties. That hasn't happened, but that could happen over the next few days and into 
the end of the week. I think that's more likely than breaking the $20,000 floor once again. So Christian, any comments on the Bitcoin chart? When I look at the, we have the Bitcoin chart up at, at the Bitcoin magazine office on the big screen all the yeah. time. And when I'm looking at it right now, I'm just seeing higher lows and higher highs off of, you know, that point that you're indicating to be what you consider to be the bottom. So, yep. you know, it's pretty early to tell. I'm very interested to see what your analysis on the most recent FOMC was and some of the talk around central banks and macro, because obviously that is having a pretty big impact right now. But yeah, I mean, it appears to be, you know, like I said, higher, higher lows, higher highs. So we'll see what happens. You know, I'm definitely not a macro analyst. I think right now, Bitcoiners, if whatever your double, whatever your DCA is, if you can afford it, you know, double it. So this is a good time to keep stacking. It's not about trying to time the bottom. You know, this is this is very very low in terms of 200-day moving average, etc. So yeah, double your DCA. Absolutely. Yeah, we talked about the higher highs and higher lows last week, and so yeah, the after the FOMC meeting. The <laughs> stocks and Bitcoin both rallied after that. So that, that's interesting. I, I might have to, to make, do a separate episode and just talk about the reaction to the FOMC meeting. But uh, I do expect the price to kind of go into that gap in volume and maybe consolidate for a couple months uh, or a couple weeks and then try to go into the I was going to say thousands. months. Jeez. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, a couple weeks. And then uh, that would also go along with a lot of my timing on this, the geopolitical stuff like the European sanctions and China and all that. So yeah, let's let's continue with these charts. So let's go to the next one, please. This is the dollar chart. And we've shown this several times, this kind of exponential curve that it was following. And it has broken out of that. Now, I'm not saying this is the end-all, be-all technical analysis. This is a super simple exponential this curve. This line that, is God, Ansel. <laughs> it, has, it has broken through. And I'm just trying to show that the trend is the momentum is slowing. The trend of the strong dollar is slowing. And of course, this is against other fiat currencies, mainly the euro and the yen. So we'll, we'll talk about the yen here in a second. Next slide. If you zoom out, then you can have the monthly chart on the dollar. And this is, you can see the shaded areas. That's These are the different steps, kind of a stepwise function since the great financial crisis. Uh, it started in the low, you know, 70s and 80s, then it got up to the 90s and up to 100. And now I think we're just going into a new higher range. A lot of people are expecting the dollar to fall, but that's not how the credit-based money works. All right. We're, the dollar is going to be permanently higher. It just depends what that range is, whether it's between 100 and 110 or 100 and 120, something like that. That's where the higher range is going to be. Any, any comments on the dollar before I move into talking about other currencies? You know, I, I think that we do a lot of education here about like what's the underlying dynamics of a credit-based money. So it's really interesting to see the cognitive dissonance between those screaming hyperinflation and then strong dollar simultaneously. It's been very interesting to see that kind of playing out. And yeah, I would like to give another shout out to Ansel. You know, I think Ansel has been, you know, relatively directly correct about like, you know, what is fundamentally happening, even through a lot of kind of noise and even name calling from 
you know, those screaming inflation just six months ago. So obviously CPI is up. I think there's a lot of reasons why that could happen. But at the same time, the dollar compared to other fiats, you can see this trend, you know, since 2008, it's, it's you know, been kind of reaching for those next levels. And we'll see if we get that to that, you know, kind of early 2000s level for, for the dollar before it came crashing down. Yeah. And, you know, strong dollar signals that there's stress in the financial system. So if we go to the next one is a Hong Kong dollar, the next chart there, you can see back, I, I took a few years time frame here and going back to 2018 and 19, it was testing the top of this range that they peg the Hong Kong dollar at. They peg it between 7.75 and 7.85. And, you know, we've talked on this show several times that the economy was already rolling over before COVID ever hit, right? Before 2009, you had the 2019, you had the repo rumble, you had the Fed pausing and cutting rates in 2019. So you can see that the Hong Kong dollar was, was really reacting to the stress in the financial system, pressing up on the top of that peg. And we're back up there again. Now, Hong Kong does have a lot of dollar reserves, so I don't think this is in danger of breaking anytime soon, but I do think that it does signal that China is having a major kind of dollar shortage, a major credit problem, and we've covered that on the show here, and we'll cover a few other things today. If you go to the next slide, is Japanese yen, and we've heard a lot in the last couple months about the rising or the falling Japanese yen on this chart, it's rising, you know, more yen per dollar on this chart as it goes up. Something I just noticed though, as I was preparing for the show was, you know, they had a very big, important election that just happened. And I wonder if you guys, Christian, if you can guess where on this chart did those elections take place? I mean, I'm assuming it happened when things started going when I guess when the dollar started to lose value against the yen. Yes, it happened. At the, it happened at the top, at the very tippy top, almost to the day. The Japanese yen stopped, you know, going down against the dollar and has since rallied six percent. And that was also remember that Abe got assassinated just a couple days before the election, and he has this conservative. He's a was a leader in the conservative party who has a, a majority in the parliament there. And this very important election was coming up. And it's crazy how you look at this chart and it, somebody knew that there was stress in the system. Somebody knew that they were, maybe they were trying to take out the conservatives over there because, you know, Abe was a big proponent of uh, getting rearming Japan and getting their Navy back and all that. But the result of that election was the conservatives actually increased their uh, share in the parliament slightly. So I don't know, maybe that's why we were seeing some decrease in stress going on over in Japan. I, I just thought it was fascinating that the election marked the very top of this chart. Any comments the top on of the that? dollar in terms of the dollar to Japanese exchange ratio. So yeah. very interesting for sure. It, it really is interesting to see how these charts react to global global events and you know i'd even be interested in like you know you've done this before but you've like done highlights and you've done like pointers of like global events i think you did mm -hmm. that with a cash rate as well as bitcoin price around like the china exodus a lot of that kind of analysis is very very interesting to see so very good observation there and yeah i mean i think that there's other signals kind of like this everywhere so you just gotta you know be able to to find them yeah and there is you know the main rival of Japan is China, and there's all this military talk now with Taiwan. And so I just think that there's stuff going on 
that we don't see in the headlines and that you can see in the charts. Once you can see it in hindsight, like, oh, look, this is what happened when this this political event happened. And so somebody must have been on that that side of the trade or you know what I mean. And I, I just think it's it's fascinating. So uh, next couple charts I have here is on the yield curve. So, Chris, could you go to number eight? Yeah, so I've been posting this on Twitter almost every day, maybe every other day as an update. And what you see on this colorful chart, that's just the yields on all of these different uh, tenors of U.S. Treasury. So up to the 10-year, you have four-week, three-month, six-month, two-year, five-year, and 10-year. And it's just interesting that as the Fed has been raising this Fed funds target, the higher end or the longer end of the yield curve is doesn't care. It's still crashing. And even after they did the 75 basis point rise, you know, just last week or whenever it was, the rates have crashed since then. So it's amazing. A lot of people are watching the three month and 10 year. That's the next one to cross. And if you go to the next slide there, Chris, is that that's the, the 10 year, three month. And look at that curve. I mean, I pointed out some periods back in 2019 when Powell pivoted last. He pivoted at around 35 bips, and then he cut. He started cutting rates when this went inverted. But just look at that, what's happened over the last couple months. It's gone straight down, and the, the market is expecting some crazy event to happen, whether that's this week, next week, next month. What I do expect is usually markets tend to be very volatile around the end of Q3. I think I mentioned this last week as well, but you have, you know, Lehman Brothers, you have 9-11, you have the 92 Soros attack on the British pound was in October. Then you have 1987, the big market crash. You have 1929 and the Great Depression crashed in October. And then you have the even the panic of 1907 happened at the end of third quarter. So it seems like the end of third quarter is when all of these big market crashes happen. And this chart is signaling that there is major stress in the system. So uh, I'm all eyes from me are going to be on about September 15th to October 15th. That's when I'm expecting some major fireworks. Very interesting. Okay. And just so you can be really specific, looking at this chart, effectively what you're trying to show is that the market is doing its thing. The Fed is, you know, yes, making a proclamation. The market is effectively doing the opposite. You know, really, it's kind of doing its own thing. It doesn't really seem like it's necessarily reacting to the Fed directly. Is that what you're trying to indicate here? Yeah. Remember the Fed pivot or Powell pivoted around the middle of last year, at least in his rhetoric. It didn't really start until December, but this this chart didn't peak until May. And it's just fallen off a cliff since then. So there's really no correlation in my mind on this between the Fed and what the market is telling us. If you go back to slide number eight, please, Chris, then you can see the, a lot of people were asking me like, what, what, why does the inversion matter? What is the inversion telling us? Why does it matter if the 10 year is crossing under the three month? Well, th these two things have different utilities. They have different functions in the financial system. So usually treasury bills, you know, one year or less, they are used as collateral in repo. Um, so that, that would be for like business operations. And then the 10 year and 30 year, those are usually used as hedging devices. So, so for against uncertain in the future. So if, if the tenure is 
more popular. That means that the rates are going down because pe more people are buying the 10 year versus the three month, right? Relatively and inverts. That means the biggest, most sophisticated market in the world is hedging more than they're doing their normal operations. And to me, that is a pretty significant thing. The, they're, they're expecting something to happen in the very near future. And the, the hedging pressure continues to grow. And then once you get inverted, that means, you know, the probability of something happening because everybody's hedged. So everybody can see more and more that there's a crisis coming in the near future. And as those things go inverted, it takes a lot of money and a lot of pressure to push these things inverted. Once they do go inverted, the probability of something happening is very high. So that's what a tr the yield curve is telling us. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. I just want to let you know that tickets for Bitcoin Amsterdam are on sale now. The largest Bitcoin conference in Europe will take place from October 12th to 14th. More details can be found at b.tc forward slash conference forward slash Amsterdam. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your Bitcoin Amsterdam tickets today. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. All right, so <laughs> prepare yourselves. Ansel, Ansel is targeting you know, end of Q3, beginning of Q4. Historically, it seems like pressure builds. You know, there's a cyclicality to the world and, uh, you know, it really is amazing seeing these long dated bonds going under the uh, the short dated bonds. So um, obviously, you know, that's saying something. So, you know, and it, and it I would say like at the very core, it's indicating that the system is not working. There's something wrong yeah. here, but I'm sure there's more specific things, but I don't have much to add. I don't know if you have another chart here. We want to go to the yeah. next subject. Let's go on to the energy charts real quick. We got plenty of time. We got a whole hour for this, Christian. <laughs> chart I ain't heaven. no rush. Chart Let's heaven. Uh, <laughs> all right. So I'm, this I'm is dumb. <laughs> oh, come on now. This is a chart of WTI oil. This is US oil. And you could I just drew a few lines on this chart. And I know a lot of people in Bitcoin don't like technical analysis, but I think it's amazing to look at this chart. You see where Back in March of, was that March of this year, it broke out. And right at that level that it broke out, it's been testing several times. And right now it looks as if it might break down out of this, this support. And where's the bottom for oil? It's, it's, I think this is a very important chart in the world because where oil goes cpi usually goes a lot of people were calling for higher oil prices but as we can see it keeps dipping under a hundred dollars a barrel and my expectation is that it continues lower we're going into recession and in recession you know demand goes down so as especially in china i mean they're in a financial crisis so the demand in China is going to fall through the floor. So demand around the world is going down for oil. At the same time, month over month, we're getting increases in the supply of oil. A lot of people were scared that the Russian supply would come off the market. They've been pretty stable. Libya actually just came back onto the market with about one to one and a half million barrels a day. The U.S. keeps adding slightly. Right now, the U.S. is 
pumping about 12.1 million barrels a day. The record is 13.1. So we're pretty close to the record oil production in the U.S. And that's with all the stranglehold of the administration, you know, on the on the oil companies and things. So, yeah, I expect recession to push demand lower and supply is going to remain relatively constant. So I think the the whole narrative of really high oil pushing a reinforcing inflation cycle is is way overplayed. If you go to the and next so, chart, yeah, go. Well, before we go, what does yeah. what does this mean for Europe? Because simultaneously, mm-hmm. Europe is facing uh, a crisis in actually getting energy, both because of you know mm-hmm. their actions domestically and within the EU, as well as because of altercations with Russia and and that supply chain, and even also issues in the U.S. I know a really big, I think it was a liquefied natural gas facility in Texas blew up, and yeah. you know that at least took several months of production offline. That was really earmarked just for Europe, so. What does mm-hmm. all of that, you know, kind of like s- stress in the European energy markets and then simultaneously energy prices and oil prices going down? Like, w- what does that mean? Well, I mean, Europe is in a completely different situation. When I look at the world, I see there, there's kind of three major powers or areas of concern. You have Europe, and that includes Russia, China, and that includes like Japan, and then the U.S. So... In the U.S., I see the recession pushing oil prices down, CPI coming down, relatively stable over here. But in those other two areas of Europe and China, they're having their own problems. So the when, when you sanction a country that you get most of your energy from and prices go up, this is not money printing. I don't know why people think that inflation, the quote-unquote inflation that they see over there in Europe – is due to some sort of monetary policy and that the, the ECB or what the Fed does or what anybody is doing in central bank land can affect the the price increases that are happening in Europe. It is completely outside of the realm of monetary matters and it is completely in the political realm. Those politicians are kneecapping their economy. That's what we see in Europe. We don't see the same thing from the U.S. We see a little bit where the Biden is, you know, really uh, coming down hard on some of the oil companies and and things like that. But for the most part, we don't see the kneecapping of the economy like we do over there in Europe. So they are in a completely different situation. And we'll get to a chart here in a second of the European gas prices. But yeah, I agree. They're in deep, deep trouble over there. Did that answer the question? I mean, I, th- I think what you're saying is that, like, it doesn't really ma- matter what oil is doing because their issues are political. Yeah, and, and you're sanctioning your supply. So that that's what's going on in the global oil market is not going to be represented what's going on in Germany or in the Netherlands because they're sanctioning their supply. Their, their, their price structure is completely dependent on their political actions that they're doing. It has nothing to do with, with the supply uh, demand supply and demand of oil, but okay, let's go on to the next one. This is a monthly chart of U.S. oil, and I just want to point out that you know we peaked in the Great Financial Crisis, and we did not get back to that peak this time. And also, we hit zero, and uh, the the 
monetary problems that can happen when you hit zero. You know, you have demand destruction or you don't have demand destruction. You have supply destruction going on, you know, people going out of business, oil producers going out of business. And then, of course, we're going to have a reflexive spike in oil prices. But I do think that it's coming back down and it will act similar to the way it acted in the great financial crisis. We'll have, you know, a fluctuation in a middle range. Where that is, I don't know, but I don't expect a blow off top in oil. That, that's already happened. We're just going to consolidate here. Next slide, please. If I could just jump in, you know, yeah, this absolutely. is anecdotal, but, you know, driving around around Nashville, you can see prices are going down. Even I was just recently in California and, you know, prices are down substantially since I made my cross country drive. So, you know, that that top right there, I was buying that at gas, gas stations across the country <laughs> driving, but they have gone down significantly. So you're seeing this in in like the, you know, just the the regular market. Yeah, absolutely. And it has nothing to do with administration policy, right? Like Biden, now they're trying to pin quote unquote inflation on Biden and they're trying to, Biden's trying to take credit for the price cuts or the price drops, but none of this has anything to do with them. So this is kind of its own beast. But on the next chart, I have gasoline prices. Speaking of gasoline, this is gasoline futures. So not oil, but gasoline, you know, refined gasoline for, I don't know, E80, 87 octane or 89 octane, whatever you're using. And it, we did reach all time high and, but it is coming back down. So we'll see where this goes. I think it could fall down to $2 and man alive would that get people to these inflationists to think, well, maybe, maybe inflation isn't going to be a runaway type of thing. Uh, maybe we have to question ourselves. We're already seeing the shift. We're seeing other yeah. commentators coming out with similar talk tracks and, you know, going beyond like a, a Jeff Snyder and actually, you know, connecting the, the, the issues with the current monetary system to the solution yeah. that is Bitcoin, which is what we do here. Yep. All right. So no, next two charts I have, we'll run through these real quick. This is the European natural gas futures, and you can see it's just gapping up. It still continues to gap up. It's at $200 per contract here. And then on the next chart, what I think is important is this is a just a, a the current futures month one year out, July 23 and July 24. If you look at July 23, it's where the front month contract was like two months ago. And the two-year front month or two-year forward is where the front month was just at the beginning of the year. So these, it's starting to look like there is no end in sight. There is no relief coming to Europe that these you know, energy prices are just going to continue to go up and that brings us into the next story, which is the, the European sanctions and development on that front. So do you have any comments on this or should we roll into the article? So just really quick, effectively, what this is showing is that this month or, you know, this month and then the contracts for purchasing oil for the next two years for delivery in July. Extreme, yeah, extremely elevated. So. You know, pretty much what it's saying is that the market is pricing European energy, even in 2024, that you purchase and lock in today as yeah. being much, much higher than, you know, the mean or the average prior to, you know, this crisis. So very, very bearish, very scary. And like you said, you know, two years of elevated energy prices, like how long can Europe sustain this really? Like how long can they do that? I don't know. Yeah. And the European narrative right now, if you ask the globalists, 
they're not stopping, right? They're they're going full bore into these sanctions, and they're they're ready to crash your economy. But maybe maybe they're lying to us. Maybe they're lying to us. That's the next story here. Let me pull up this. If you go to the next slide, there, there, that is the Financial Times article. I'm just going to read through this real quick. And Christian, stop me if I'm droning on or whatever. But there's some really important points in this article. So European governments have eased back on efforts to curb trade in Russian oil, delaying a plan to shut Moscow out of the vital Lloyd's of London maritime insurance market and allowing some international shipments amid fears of rising crude prices and tighter global energy supplies. The EU announced a worldwide ban on the provision of maritime insurance to vessels carrying Russian oil two months ago, expecting coordinated action with the British government. However, the UK is yet to introduce similar restrictions. UK participation is pivotal to the effectiveness of any such ban because London is at the center of the maritime insurance industry. Meanwhile, Brussels in late July amended some curbs on dealing with state-owned Russian companies, citing concerns over global energy security. So they're they're citing this concern over global energy security, they're over supplies, you know, global energy supplies. They're supposed to really crush Russian exports by refusing to insure the vessels. And we actually saw this early in the conflict in the Black Sea. Some of the exports coming out of like Crimea and out of Odessa and things, they weren't able to, the ships weren't going to sail in there because they couldn't get insurance to go into a war zone. And now they were going to apply that through the main player, which is London, apply that to all Russian exports. And that was supposed to be their big kind of chess move that they moved into checkmate. We got you, but that's not really the case. So let's continue reading. A joint UK EU prohibition on maritime insurance would constitute the most comprehensive restriction to date on Russian oil, ending access to much of the global tanker fleet for Moscow's exports. But U.S. officials have expressed concern that immediate global ban on maritime insurance would push up prices by pulling millions of barrels of Russian crude and petroleum products off the market. European and British officials told the Financial Times in May that the U.K. had agreed with the EU to coordinate a ban on insuring Russian oil cargoes. However, Britain's latest sanctions against Russia, approved by Parliament just last month in July, only prohibit providing insurance to vessels carrying Russian oil to the UK, and only after December 31st. The legislation was introduced after the government promised to outlaw the import of Russian oil from the end of the year but does not ban the provision of services to shipments from Russia to other countries, UK officials said. So, wow, this actually is a big development. Everybody was expecting these sanctions to, you know, get tighter and crank down on the Russian economy and Russian export of oil. But the UK surprised everybody and they said, no, we're just going to not ensure those shipments to the UK itself, but to all around the world, you know, India or Argentina or Turkey or wherever these shipments are going, they, they can still go just fine. We'll, we'll ensure them. That that's a pretty big, a pretty big uh, wake up call. The EU. I mean, insurance, it's, yeah, it, 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 it's crazy though. Cause it just shows one, how toothless these sanctions are, but also mm-hmm. it just shows how willing the UK is to pretty much throw their own people under the bus to virtue signal. 
like hey yeah. they're not they're gonna they're gonna strip out the effectiveness of the sanctions because they're unwilling to give up that international business opportunity but you know they will still you know expose their people to higher prices that way they could appear as though they're doing something it's honestly it's just absolutely pathetic it just shows how misaligned the incentives are like these politicians in no way are trying to help their people. Like what, the, what the actual hell is that? Absolutely. And, but there is no ban on middlemen buying the oil first. So th- it goes on later in this article. I won't read it all, but I just want to summarize it here. They, they're saying the EU also surprised with their most recent sanctions package saying that they oil companies in Europe can deal with, certain companies in Russia, as long as they're not shipping or buying oil from them directly. So they, Europe could buy oil through, say, an Indian company. It's just a shell company set up. It's Russian-owned maybe, but it's set up in India. They buy the gas or the oil, and then they sell the contracts to... You could even have a, a thing where ships are leaving from Russia, and then mid in middle of you know sailing from northern port past northern europe this indian company actually sells that oil or gas to europe and so then it just deviates from its initial course and goes and delivers it to europe so it's just adding a little fee on top for the middleman but to my mind this is a complete rollback of the sanctions so it's kind of under the radar now and it saves face for the EU and for the US and the UK. They can say they put sanctions on, but really what it's doing is it's making the sanctions more lax. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And effectively what it does is it, it's really sinister because it's like each country or each nation or each you know electoral body is pretty much willing to throw the market, throw their people under the bus, and then on the flip side, completely defang the actual mechanism. They're all willing to do that, you know? So it's like, why why are you misleading people? Like, why are you, like, what what is happening here? So I think it's quite alarming. It's really quite alarming. But yeah, it is saving face, and it just shows the ineffectiveness. Like, these politicians and policies, like... They'll do whatever it takes to say, look, I did this thing, I fixed it, and you know, I'm the reason prices went down because of, you know, our whatever policy. And I mean, it it's all it's all just a game. It's it's really sad. Absolutely. Well, the Russia called their bluff, you know. Russia knew that they couldn't make it through winter. And so that kind of the one of the themes of this show, these two geopolitical topics I want to talk about, Europe and China, it's Two times now, these people, their bluffs have been called. So in Europe now, Russia has called the EU's bluff. And over in China, it appears that the U.S. might have called China's bluff. So any more on this stuff from Europe or should we move on to China? No, I'm very interested to talk about China. I'm hearing a lot of interesting takes going around, (laughs) you know, with China's positioning and what they might do. So I'm very curious to hear about what you see. Well, yeah, I'd be curious to hear what you're hearing out there as well. Well, Um, I've been talking about this all. Yeah, go for it. Go ahead. No, you go, go, go. go. 
I was just gonna say people people are noticing that the real estate market there is one huge two in dire crisis and contagion is everywhere. And when you know, a country is in a really, really bad position, they might do something rash. So we don't know exactly what that might be. Some people are saying, you know, go after Taiwan, you know, that we already like, I don't think people give them enough credit that they've already taken Hong Kong. And for whatever reason, the West didn't do anything about it. And, you know, we've seen Hong Kong get completely, you know, China-fied. But yeah, I mean, it's very interesting to see what happens with Taiwan. On the flip side, you're saying, you know, the US is calling their bluff. Nancy Pelosi just landed yep. in, in Taiwan. So uh, I'm very curious to hear what your analysis is. All right. Well, yeah, I said that this wasn't going to be a big deal days ago on my live streams over on Telegram because the way I understand the situation is, yeah, they, they do have a big credit crisis happening in China. And that can like stoke nationalistic fervor to go out and prove themselves or even to change the minds of people away from the financial crisis towards the enemy abroad that's actually the one doing this to them. So I can see that. But, you know, they have the 20 party, 20th party Congress coming up later this year. And Xi is up for the first time, first prime minister or leader of the Communist Party, first time ever that they'll get three terms. So this is, he's breaking with tradition and he's becoming emperor for life. This is a very important year for, for Xi Jinping. And so I don't think they would want to start a war or start something right before that happens. Also, zero COVID, zero COVID proves that they value loyalty over the economy. You know, they're willing to crush their economy just to prove that the, this city's loyal or this minister or this province is loyal to Xi Jinping. So I don't think that they care too much about the economy. And yeah, so that, that's, that's my initial thoughts. Plus, they aren't militarily strong enough to take Taiwan, I don't think. They have, I mean, it's, it's completely different than Hong Kong. So Hong Kong, they, they have bridges, you know, it's right there on the coast. But Taiwan, it's an amphibious landing, and that is the hardest thing to do in warfare against the world's largest navy, the United States Navy, and, you know, hardcore dug-in defenses of Taiwan. So it's not an easy thing to do, and they risk failing right before the 20th Party Congress. So I don't think they're going to risk that. I was like, no, nah, this is, the U.S. is calling their blood. I wouldn't have done it. But a lot of people think like the U.S. is dumb with foreign policy. And I think 99% of what they do is dumb with foreign policy. But in this case, I after looking at it, I was like, wow, this was actually a very smart move to call China's bluff. And the reason why I like this is because China is they're globalists. You know, they're they're in the same boat as the globalists over there in Davos, because China relies on the global system. They are the biggest manufacturer, the biggest importer and exporter of almost everything out there. They rely on international trade. And so they are globalists. They want globalization. They did so well in the last 20 years, 30 years based off globalization. So they, that's who, in my mind, who I would fight against is I would fight against the globalists and China fits right into there. Plus, of course, there are human rights abuses and all of that stuff going on. But yeah, that, that's my thoughts. Any any pushback on that, Christian? 
No, I mean, I, I, lar- I largely agree. And I did hear kind of analysis talking about this Congress, and we've been talking about Xi becoming the emperor of China, yeah. and how important it is. And really, it's kind of insane seeing, you know, it all coming crashing down on the verge of him being crowned emperor. It's like, you know, Rome is falling <laughs> to some degree. But yeah, I mean, you've talked about this multiple times on the show, deglobalization, reduction in credit, and, and reduction in growth is really, really, really bad for China, because everything about China is kind of has or modern China has been built on this most recent, you know, kind of globalization trend. Oh, absolutely. This morning, I had a rant on my telegram live stream, where I went through, you know, why that over the last 75 years since World War Two, why we moved away from a commodity money towards a, cre- a pure credit-based money. And mainly it's because, you know, the, the strength of pure credit-based money is it's, it's a expansion capability, right? You can really lever up with this, with the credit-based money. And so after World War II, they had just a world that was ready to take on credit. So the first they, they, expanded credit in Europe and Europe had a recovery. Then they expanded credit in Japan and Japan had a recovery. Then it moved over to China and they just kept expanding, expanding credit, but credit-based money has a weakness. And that is once it expands too much and it has to deflate, then everything will go. So I think that it was a natural evolution towards credit-based money after world war II. We can see this in the evolution of the euro dollar system. No one planned the euro dollar system. It just naturally evolved to take over in the 60s and 70s. And then you have the end of the credit-based system and a return to a commodity-backed money, which is Bitcoin, because the strength of a commodity-backed money uh, is that it it controls credit, right? It keeps bubbles from getting out of hand. Well, what do we have now? We have the biggest credit bubble the world has ever seen. So naturally, I think over the next decade, the world is naturally going to go towards commodity-backed money again, which Bitcoin is the best choice for that. So this is a natural evolution towards credit-based money and a natural evolution away from credit-based money towards Bitcoin. All right, I'll I'll get done with that. What are your thoughts on that rant there, Christian? Great rant, great rant. And I agree that there is this monetary sea change. It is absolutely incredible to see a world where, you know, you saw Iraq get invaded, you saw Gaddafi yeah. getting assassinated when they ever tried to question dollar supremacy and the dollar monopoly on oil sales. And now we see that system have been completely and totally disrespected. No one cares about it anymore. Yes, there are Mm -hmm. no other liquid alternatives, but no one is scared of that system anymore. And I think it's fair to say that the petrodollar may be over. So with that kind of context, you know, what is going to fill the void as all of these, you know, the BRIC nations are starting to scramble and get more allies and people are trying to find some sort of alternative system and they're trading like the worst fiat on on the planet. So I think that that is ripe 
right for Bitcoin to fill that void. I think Bitcoin is that neutral settlement layer. I think that proof of work makes Bitcoin very palatable for countries. I agree that Bitcoin as a commodity money uh, is is perfectly placed in this this time of transition. Yeah, well put. I think that everyone knows that the dollar system is fatally flawed, especially everybody in macro, everyone in like investing large money moves of governments and, and large multi-trillion dollar corporations. They all know that the, the dollar system is fatally flawed. It's just like, it's just the least fatally flawed right now, right? It's, it's the least bad place to be in the coming crisis. And so that's why that's like the dollar milkshake theory that it's going to suck value out of the other currencies and into the dollar. But the end, like I think a lot of people think that the end will be inflation. And that's one thing we've talked about for a long time is that people think that the, the government will just print more money and the end of the credit bubble can be fixed by more debt. We'll actually get inflation, but really the, the end of it is a deflationary grind. And like I said, the in, in at the end of a credit-based system, it's going to be a natural evolution towards a commodity-backed money because it plays to the strengths of the commodity-backed money. So anyway, that's all I got for this week, man. Do What else should we wrap on here? Where's Bitcoin going from here, Ansel? I know we Ooh. talked about the chart, but... <laughs> Uh, are, we, are we going up? Are we going down? Is Bitcoin affected by this crazy uncertainty that all the hedging that we're seeing in the bond market, you know, what happens there? Like, let's let's try to, like, bring it back to Bitcoin a little bit and maybe give people some insights onto at least what you're thinking about the short term yeah. effects. Yeah. So the it was a surprise with the FOMC that after they raised interest rates by 75 basis points, which is supposed to be tightening and it's supposed to be bad. Right. It's supposed to be bad for the market. At least it's taking stimulus away from the market. Stocks and Bitcoin rallied. Now, why would that be? Well, at least for stocks, we know. Sorry, my chair keeps clicking. I have an old chair, an old car. I'm a real Bitcoin hodler. <laughs> but <laughs> anyways. Hey, the, you're, you're, you're short Bitcoin if, you, if your chairs and your cars aren't older than Bitcoin. Okay, so this, the, the stocks rallied because you know, stocks are forward looking. And maybe they see some credit crisis in the near future. But if you look back at September of 2019, they also saw something happening in September of 2019. I mean, the Fed was pivoting and the Fed was cutting, but then we had a repo rumble. The market didn't care. The market looked at it and they were looking ahead of that. So I think that the stock, what stocks are doing right now is they're actually looking past all of this acute crisis that's about to happen. They're looking three, six months down the road past where this acute crisis is going. And so that's that's where I see the Bitcoin is going to go with stocks higher um, over the next six months. And so I remember when you were talking to Tom Luanga, who is a friend and someone who's been on the show multiple times, he was arguing that the, the Fed was just going to take it to the bloody end and they're just yeah, yeah. going to rip rates up and, and bring Europe to its knees you know, your position was a little bit more like, no, this is unsustainable. They're going to have to pivot. And even like the Fed tightening less than the expectations of them is showing some sort of a esque reaction from the market. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think 
of that that dialogue from a few months ago and how do you feel about at least you know it seems as though you've been you were a little bit more directly correct this time yeah well i mean i've been i i guess you could say directionally correct but i i didn't think rates would get as high as they did and i thought they would fall faster than they have but the the disagreement i have with tom which love the guy he's i mean very passionate and fun to talk to and fun to read his his article so if you guys don't haven't done it go to gold goats and guns just search that in google and you'll find his blog i mean his, his writing is is top notch but anyways where i i don't believe that the fed matters right if you you would do better knowing what's going to come or predicting the future if you just forgot that the fed existed and then when you look at the rates, you know, that the rates are telling you everything you need to know. The Fed, if they hike to four, five, six percent for the Fed funds rate, and the 10-year is down at two percent, the mythology of the Fed is busted. No one will believe that that the Fed can do anything. Their whole forward guidance, their whole reason for existence will be gone. So I don't think if the, as the tenure and as the long end, the long bonds come down, the Fed must pivot because they, else they would lose confidence. Another thing also is look at uh, the repo rumble. Okay. The repo rumble was a highly acute problem with the repo market where there it went bidless. You could not, you could not borrow cash and you could not borrow treasuries in the repo market it went completely it froze and when that happens the system is about to explode and the fed had to react they had to come in and provide stimulus to the market in that case because if they didn't you know the whole market would just unravel now the fed can't say oh look i'm going to i'm going to do this specific mechanical injection of stimulus but they can come in and say don't worry guys don't panic. Don't panic. We got you. It's going to be okay. We'll do this little, we'll do this thing that will give some liquidity to the market. And then people will stop their panic and they will get back into the, the swing of things. Because what happens in those panic times, you know, is that somebody's trying to borrow money and they can't find any money. And so they continue, they, they, keep raising their bid, raising their bid. And the, the, the rest of the market's looking at, oh my God, this guy's about to explode. So they are not going to lend to anybody because there's a contagion everywhere in the market. And so the people are panicked and liquidity just goes to zero. The Fed can handle that because they come in as the God almighty of the market. And they say, look guys, don't panic. We got you. We're going to get this back on track. And then they get past that acute panic phase. So anyways, Long story short, I think that that's what we're going towards. Again, we're going towards an acute panic phase, but stocks and Bitcoin are looking past that. They're looking forward six months down the road instead of two months. So that's that's it. I hope that made sense. No, it makes sense. And I'm, I've also just been, while listening to you, looking through the comments here, there's a comment that they should call you Ransel instead of Ansel because you, you, you go on, on these spirited like rants. And someone also is commenting that $5 per sat is a bear case. I love that, you know, I've successfully turned myself into a Bitcoin bull meme. 
um, with my ridiculous dollar per set, $5 per set, $6 per set, you know, let's just call it predictions. But you know, I do believe that $5 per set is probably a bear case and Bitcoin hyper Bitcoinization is infinity divided by 21 million. And because Bitcoin is better money, it's going to make the infinity bigger too, because it's actually going to make our economy more productive because we don't have to go through the economic hurricane and shit show that we're currently, you know, being subjected to. So end of CK rant, I guess. But a big point well, of the show is to just show how bad, you know, the current system is. Well, wait, what about if they peg a dollar to a hundred sets, then it can never get to six sets. Yeah, that's how the central banks stop stop hyper Bitcoinization. It's just <laughs> peg peg their fiat to well, an I mean, insane obscene amount of sats. I mean, back the dollar with Bitcoin at a hundred sats per dollar, and that would be yeah. one sat percent. That that that's a possibility in my my future. So whatever my predictions. Right. Y'all, you can follow me at CK underscore Snarks. Q tried to sabotage my Twitter follows, but don't listen to him. Follow me at CK underscore Snarks. Number continues to go up on the follow, so I appreciate you all. And uh, make sure to get Bitcoin Magazine print censorship resistant issue. Make sure to subscribe for the collector's issue where you get two copies, one plastic wrapped. Make sure to go and get a copy of the newest issue that's coming out next month will be part of the subscription. And don't forget about Bitcoin Amsterdam. That is coming up in very close to 70 days here. So Bitcoin Amsterdam is going to be a blast if you're at Bitcoin 2019. Nothing better than a bear market Bitcoin conference. It's going to be a lot smaller. It's going to be a lot more diehard. Can't wait for it. October 12th to the 14th. Ansel. All right. So people can follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner. And check out BitcoinAndMarkets.com. That's where most of my content gets correlated there. So go, go to BitcoinAndMarkets.com. Thank you. Hey, guys. This is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. We're going back to Miami for Bitcoin 2023. Lock in your tickets before prices go up. Use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your tickets today. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today. What is up, audio listeners? Thank you for enjoying another episode of FedWatch. Down in the show notes, you will find all the appropriate links to our social media, the original version of this podcast, and community links. Also, check out BitcoinAndMarkets.com where I put out a free weekly newsletter every Friday. And there you can also help support the show by signing up to become a paid member. See you next time.